the gospel required the crucifixion of the Messiah. The gospel required the Father to judge the sinless Son in place of sinners. The gospel is an offense to many, if not most people. And the list could go on of negative things about the gospel. The question then is, what makes the gospel, which means good news, good? If there are all of these negative things, some horrific things associated with the gospel, what makes the gospel good news anyway? And this morning we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, which we've already read earlier. And in this great text, we see some of the great things that make the gospel such good news. So if you open with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Romans chapter 7, we're going to discern the right answer to that question. What makes the gospel, which means good news, so good? And we're going to see a number of reasons in Romans 7, 1 to 6, that help us to see why the gospel is such good news to us, specifically as sinners. Reason number one, condemnation under the law is inescapable. I know it's a mouthful, a lot to maybe get your mind around too. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. The first reason that the gospel is so good, we're going to see in the text in just a moment, is because condemnation under the law is inescapable, specifically God's law. And we see this in verses 1 to 3, specifically in verse 1. Look with me, if you would, again at verse 1 of Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Let's let that soak in our minds for a moment. It's inescapable, this law of God, this jurisdiction of the law of God that we're under, because he says, as long as he lives. That's why I would say this is, this is inescapable. This has to do with our whole lives. There's nothing we can do to get out from under God's just and righteous law. And the Apostle Paul at this point in time assumes that we all know what he means by law. In fact, that's why he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He's assuming a positive answer to this rhetorical question. And he assumes that we all know what he means. He can assume that because Romans 1 to 6 has explained what is meant by the law of God. What we've learned, and if you haven't learned, you can go back to Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 is that God's law is holy and righteous and that under God's law, we all stand condemned because we're not. Maybe just to pick up a couple of high points or maybe I should call them low points in Romans 1 to 6. Why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 3. The reason he can say what he says in Romans 7, 1, that this is something we should all know, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. In other words, we're in trouble 
is because of passages like Romans 3. And let's just choose one verse that's a low point or a high point. Romans 3.19, just as a sampling, says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every, notice the universal emphasis, every mouth may be closed, and that all the world, more universal emphasis, may become accountable to God. And if we were to take the time to go back and unpack all of those things, without a doubt, what you see in those early chapters of Romans is that that everyone is guilty. That God is holy and righteous. He has a holy and righteous law, and we are all lawbreakers. And this is a problem. And we can't get out from under this problem. Condemnation under the law is inescapable. Even in Romans chapter 6, at the very end, before we get to chapter 7, The beginning of 6.23, a familiar passage to you if you're familiar with the Bible at all, in Romans 6.23 begins by saying, the wages of sin is death. This is more bad news. So when in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, everyone is under the jurisdiction of the law, as long as you live, this is a bad thing. This is a very bad thing. This means that you as a sinner are in a seemingly impossible predicament. This is horrible news. This is very bad news. It's very bad news that gets you ready to appreciate the very good news. God's law is good and righteous. We're sinners. How do we escape? How do we get out of it? He's saying, you're you're under it as long as you live. And at face value, you say, that that, that means we're smoked. There's there's nothing you can do. I mean, this is an impossibility. And we're meant to see it that way. Having said that, though, there's there's just this, if you look again at verse 1, there's something about verse 1 that gives just a ray of hopefulness. There's a hint in in verse 1. I know it's a hint because of what he says in 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 where he says, as long as he lives. At first you say, well, what else is there? (laughs) I mean, that, that, that means, as I said in theological technical jargon, I'm smoked. Man, there's nothing that can be done. But he picks up on that idea in this illustration that he gives. There actually might be hope. Hope and death. Freedom from under the bondage of the law through death. Look with me at this illustration in verses 2 and 3. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. That makes sense. He assumes we are all going to sign off on that. That makes total sense to everyone he's writing to. And then he says, But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Notice there's release where there's death. So then in verse 3 it says, If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Again, signing off on that. That just makes sense. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. See what he did? What's total, totally fatal in verse 1 
actually gives opportunity. There's a little crack in the door to see a little bit of, a little bit of light and say, actually, we're on to something here. This, this death theme. Because where there's death, there's freedom. I don't think for a second that he gives us verses 2 and 3 to give us uh, a, a detailed discourse on marriage, life, death, and divorce. The point of Romans 7, 2 and 3 is to give us an illustration. Just a simple illustration. Romans chapters 1 to 7 clearly is not about marriage and divorce. But it's for us to see, hmm, this makes sense. There is freedom where there's death in a marriage. So, so maybe there's freedom in death for us as sinners somehow. And that's what he's going to unpack as we move things along. We understand this. We understand the marriage illustration. We, we understand this to the degree that some people, I just read about someone yesterday just to see uh, that it actually happens because I figured it happened. And sure enough, you can find people in the news who, who fake their own death to try to get out of paying taxes. And they get caught. That's why they're in the newspaper. So it's probably not a good idea. You know, you want, you know, you want to get out of those speeding tickets that you, you have? You know what? I, if you die, you won't worry about it. Okay? I mean, you're going to have freedom from your speeding tickets. And uh, maybe those who are left behind are going to have to pay your tax. Death tax, right? Uh, or somehow have to pay your speeding tickets. But we understand the idea. I think he uses marriage strategically because he's going to talk about union and union with Christ. But so far, this, this makes sense. And now he has sort of, of paved the way for us to get to the good stuff. You know, verse 1 is just bad. And that gets you ready for the gospel. You are under the condemnation of God, and therefore you are busted. There's nothing you can do. But wait a second. If there, if there were a way to die before we die, because if you just die, then you're judged, according to Hebrews. But, but if, if there were a way to die before you die, die spiritually, you'd be released from this condemnation under the law. And so he's going to unpack just how that can happen through the gospel. The condemnation that we deserve, number one, tells us something about how great the gospel is. Number two, second reason the gospel is good news to sinners is because it unites sinners with Christ's death. It unites sinners with Christ's death. This is getting really good. In, in other words, let me... Make sure I get this right. I'll even read it. In other words, the jurisdiction of the law and its resultant condemnation has been broken through union with Christ's death. Let's see it in the verse. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Aha! There is a way to die. Without dying. There is a way to get out from under this condemnation of God's law. And it's through union with Christ. This is what he talked about in chapter 6. Remember, in fact, in chapter 6, verse 5, he started talking about this union idea when he says there in 6.5, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Then verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Union with Christ is the answer. This is the answer to this problem of universal condemnation. 
And what we learn in Scripture is when you believe in Christ, when you trust in Him, when you depend upon Him as your Savior, as your substitute, you're united with Him. This is why the Bible so many times uses in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. For so many years, even as a Christian, I thought, what does that mean? Union. United with Christ. And if you've believed in Him, you've been united with Him, and you've been united with Him, how good is this? In His death. And combining verse 4 with verse 1 tells us there's hope. I have died. I died with Christ. And and that means I'm not in that predicament anymore. That means I'm not smoked anymore, to use that word. That means I'm not busted anymore. That that, that means I actually don't have to face the the, the much-deserved condemnation from God. This is fantastic. This, This is what makes the gospel so good. This is a death I welcome. This is not a morbid death. This is a great death. Through faith in Christ, I died with Him, and having died, I died to the law, and therefore I am no longer under its condemnation. I just started writing down reasons why I think this is so fantastic. You could do the same. Why is this so great? Union with Christ's death. Bringing release from condemnation. I'll share with you my little list if you share yours with me sometime. This is great because it means my relationship with God is no longer based upon law-keeping. Which is huge, because if it is based upon law-keeping, again, I am totally busted in an impossible predicament. But I stand before you as a believer in Jesus Christ, therefore united with Christ in His death, and therefore when I stand before God, I don't stand, I don't try to get a relationship or maintain a relationship with God based upon my keeping of the law, because I am not a law-keeper. I am a law-breaker. And so are you. That's been Romans 1 to 3, clearly, and even beyond. I mean, if we're going to start a group, we're not going to call it law keepers or the equivalent. We're going to start a group called law breakers. Want to join? And then we're honest. Because we are law breakers. That's who we are. If we're, if we're law keepers, we don't need union with Christ. We are law breakers. But the great thing about union with Christ is I'm not relating to God anymore based upon my ability, which means lack thereof, to keep the law. Because I can't. I've already proven that I'm an absolute cosmic failure. And if I don't say that and I'm not willing to agree to that, God tells me clearly, read Romans 3. It's as clear as could be. This is fantastic. This is phenomenal. This is great also on my personal list. This is great and praiseworthy because it reminds me that through Christ I can have what no religion on planet earth can give me or any other planet. Through Christ I have what no religion could ever give me. Even some religions they call themselves Christian. Because every religion on the planet, some disguising themselves as Christian who, who are not really, end up saying, if you do these things, God will accept you. And if you work hard enough at obeying these rules, 
God will accept you. And you might not even get it all done this side of death. And we might even build some time in after you die to keep trying to be a law keeper. And eventually, if you just do the pull yourself up by your bootstraps long enough, the gospel for you is God will accept you. Well, that's not the gospel, is it? That's a load of garbage. How great that through faith in Christ's work, I'm united with Him. And I go to the grave with Him. So I am not under obligation to somehow try to earn the favor of God, which I can't do to begin with. It's a horrible, sinister trick that religion plays on people. Just try harder. Just do more. Just you, 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 you. How great is Christ. I'm freed from that bondage through faith in Him and His work. This is great also because it, it, it takes the giant big spotlight and just exposes the ugliness of legalism for what it is. It's the exact opposite of Christianity. Christ offers me union with Him through faith so I've died to this obligation to keep God's law. Why in the world would I try to keep trying to make God happy when, when, when I've already died with Christ? I'm not under the law anymore. You can keep your legalism. Get rid of your legalism. It's stupid. It's just an attack on the cross eventually. I'm not under the law. And so again, who cares about my list? Just go back to verse 4 and just read it again and see how great it is. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. How good is that? That's fantastic. Here's what my spiritual tombstone reads. Right under here lies Patrick Abendroth. Justly condemned, united with Christ, free at last. What does yours read? Justly condemned, united with Christ, free at last. R-I-P. If you're a Christian, that's what yours reads. How good is that? This is fantastic. Freedom. I should add as a footnote that if Jesus' work on the cross was only an example, then you're still under the law. And you're in that helpless predicament and you can never get out of it. If Charles Finney, evangelicalism's historical hero, I don't know how that happened, who said Christ didn't die as a substitute, he died only as an example. If he's right, you're smoked. Because you're still under the law. There is no hope for you. There's no hope for you at all. Because you've got to keep God's law perfectly and I already know your track record is in the toilet. (laughs) Because God says it is. 
No one does good, no, not one, he says in Romans 3. Also, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, as someone suggested to me recently, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, you're still under the law. You still have to earn your way. You can't. You're still under Romans 7.1. Because you haven't been united with Him in His death. And so we say, praise be to God. It is good news that He came and that He died because if we believe in Him, we've been united with Him in His death. And that means we're free from the law. Which is fantastic. It doesn't get any better. This is Christianity 101. Basic. But it's the best as it could possibly be. This is what makes the gospel so good. Freedom from condemnation. And this is only the half of it. Number three. A third reason why the gospel is so good. It unites sinners with Christ's resurrection. It unites sinners with Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 4 with me where it says, so that, oh, oh, so this is actually tied to something else, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So if you're a Christian, it's not only that you've died with Christ, and that means you're, you're free from the condemnation of God's holy law, You're united with Christ's resurrection, and that's going to mean something too. You're not just saved from something, you're saved for something. And so it's not just death, it's also resurrection. It's not that it's without purpose. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, it sounds really good, and it is good. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And if there was a period there, you know, it sounds great, it's true. But it also kind of sounds, I mean, if that's just where you ended in your life, it sounds erudite. It sounds much like, it's Christianese. You know, we've been crucified with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. Go in peace, serve the Lord. Oh, you know, we're like, man, that was church. That was awesome. Don't know what it means and it doesn't really mean anything. But he doesn't do that. It's not without purpose that we're united with Christ's resurrection. Because in verse 4, it goes on to say, in order that, there's our purpose statement, in order that we might bear fruit, and I'll stop there for now. Oh, okay. United in death so that we escape just condemnation. But we're not just neutral through union with Christ. Union in His resurrection in order that we might bear fruit. Oh, this is amazing! New Testament metaphor, pretty common to show life, fruit bearing. You know, a fruit tree is supposed to bear fruit and it shows that it's alive or it shows that it's healthy. It bears fruit. It's a great image. 
You've been raised with Christ so that you bear fruit, so that you, you do what you're designed to do, so you do what you're made to do, so you do the right thing. It's a synonym for obedience. John the Baptist, when he was preaching in Matthew chapter 3, said, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember, John was calling people to repent. Turn from your sin. Stop sinning. Because Messiah is coming. It's the only way you could ever get ready for Messiah. You you need to be ready for Him, to receive Him and believe in Him. Repent. Then he says, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do the right thing to show that your repentance is legitimate, that it's true and it's not just a sham. It's not just what you say. Obey God. And here we see fruit-bearing tied to the resurrecting work of Christ. It rescues us, but it gives us something to do that's productive. It brings spiritual life. It brings fruit. It brings fulfillment of, of what we were designed to do to begin with. And I want to say more about that But before we do that, I hope you've noticed I skipped the last two words, maybe because I think they're the best. Let's keep talking about this fruit-bearing idea from the resurrection. But let's go ahead and read it the way it should be read in verse 4. In order that we might bear fruit, you know, drum roll, right? For God! How great is that? I mean, this, this is fantastic. This just got way even better than before. Not just that we would bear fruit and do the right thing, that we would do the right thing, that we would bear fruit and show signs of life for God. And that is what you've been created to do. That's why God made human beings to begin with. That human beings would do the right thing and have the right thing be aimed toward Him. God is God and we are His subjects. We do the right thing because we show that He is God by doing the right thing. Well, we can't do that because Romans has made it clear so far that we are not right doers. We're not law keepers. We're law breakers. We're not fruit bearers for good. We're fruit bearers for bad. In fact, go ahead and look at that. We see that even in our passage in verse 5. Looking ahead a little bit, notice the contrast between verses 4 and 5. In verse 5 it says, To bear fruit for death. That was unbelieving life in Pat Avendroth's life. I bore fruit, all right, but it was fruit for death because I was just disobedient to God. And now, by the grace of God, only because of what Christ has done in order that we might bear fruit for God. Think about that. I was doing the wrong thing, offending God as a pattern. That's who I was. That's what I did. Bearing fruit, all right, for death. Wages of sin is death. I was on the fast track to hell. God would give that to me and I would deserve it. That's true for for you too. It's true for everyone. But through faith in Christ, union with His death, Union with His resurrection. Resurrection brings fruit-bearing. Fruit-bearing not for death. Fruit-bearing for God. And I think we've just started to talk about how cool this is. (laughs) The whole world is perverted. Okay? Everybody's perverted spiritually. We might do religious things, but why are we doing them? Well, for typically the opposite reasons than what God says. And even the good that we do is tainted by sin and somehow it has selfish motives. 
It's all perverted. It's all backward. Even religion is backward ultimately. But what did God do at the very beginning? He created to show how great He is. He creates human beings in His image to glorify Him. And it's been messed up and perverted ever since. But now, based upon the work of Christ, you can have restoration. You can now do what you're meant to do. You can now do what you were created to do, which is to bear fruit for God. This is absolutely amazing. Everybody wants to know, I just need to know who I am and get myself figured out so I can really live up to uh, my whole full potential. You know, I really need to find my purpose in life. What is the ultimate purpose so I can actually find fulfillment in my life? And I think that is good. I mean, there's something in the human heart that wants to do what we were made to do. And here we're learning from this text, you know what? What you were made to do is to bear fruit for God, for you to live like God is God and, and you're His creature. And now, for the first time ever, based upon the work of Christ, you can bear fruit for God. Isn't it good? I can have genuine, true, ultimate purpose in my life. This is what I was designed to do pre-fall. And the only way it can be done is through Christ. God's fixing the world, if you will. But He does it through His Son. And so we don't have to be perverted anymore. We can actually do what we were supposed to do, bear fruit for God. I love this. This is it. This is everything. If you want to take the time to turn to John chapter 15, let's use it as a complementary passage to this and, and see this connection to bearing fruit for God. I think it's worth taking the time to do. And it just doesn't get much better than this. My whole life has been bearing fruit for death. And now, based upon something I don't have the power to do in and of myself, I can bear fruit for God? Sure, I might have said I was bearing fruit for God before, but then I read Romans 3. But now I actually can. Not because I'm a good person or I try harder than the other guys, but because of what Christ has done. Just as a cross-reference to what we're looking at and, and a complementary passage, in John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says... My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. Think about that, and think about that in relationship to Romans 7. God is glorified by the disciples of Jesus bearing much fruit. By their doing the right thing, God is honored. God is treated like God. God is glorified. He's talking about the same idea essentially in Romans chapter 7. How do we glorify God? Well, we submit to Him and put ourselves under His authority, treat Him like God and not ourselves like God. We glorify Him. It's the ultimate reason to live. It's the ultimate reason to do everything, to treat God like God. 
and to give Him honor and glory. And this happens through fruit-bearing, through doing the right thing. Keep that thought on hold for a second. And go ahead and keep reading verse 8, where it says that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is a passage that's talking about assurance as well. You prove to be the disciples of Jesus by bearing fruit, much fruit, and glorifying God. Now, this could go a lot, there's all kinds of issues. But let's connect a few dots. This is important, worth seeing. Okay, assurance, one of the places assurance comes from is by fruit bearing, doing the right thing. We've we got that figured out. It's as clear as can be. You have to do some pretty strange things to John 15 to have it be something else. Okay, and I want assurance, so I want to do the right thing. But if we only take that angle, it gets perverted pretty fast. Because I think, okay, I'm going to do the right thing, pull myself up by my bootstraps. And if I just work harder at doing the right thing, I'll prove to myself and everyone else and surely to God that that I really am a disciple, I really am a Christian. So let's get after it. Consider this a big pep rally. Try harder. You'll have assurance. Well, it's probably not the way to go. Because if you remember and keep things in context of Romans chapter 7, where does the fruit bearing find its source anyway? From there. Through faith in the work of Christ, you as a non-fruit bearer, you as a disobedient individual, not an obedient individual, you throw yourself at the mercy of God by His grace, believe in His Son, in His work, His death, His burial, His resurrection. You're then united with Christ, so you're not under the condemnation of the law anymore, not because of what you did, but because of what He did. And then you've been raised unto newness of life so that you could bear fruit for God. How? Because you tried so hard? No! Because of what Christ did for you. Because of your union with Christ now. Because of His work. How else do I say it? Because of His merits, because of His resurrection, now you bear fruit for God. You see? Who gets the glory for this business? It's not you. It's not me. And so where does the assurance ultimately come from? Immediately, on the surface, some of my assurance comes from the fact that there's fruit bearing in my life. I don't want to deny John 15, but I have to realize that, that, that ultimately the assurance comes from where? It comes from Christ. Because that's the source of the fruit bearing to begin with. The ultimate source of all assurance is, 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 is Christ. It's awesome. This is absolutely awesome. And we can't get this messed up. Or it kind of messes everything up. It's a guaranteed train wreck ready to happen. He gets the glory. He gets the honor. And you know what? It is motivating because, you know what? I do want to bear much fruit. 
I want to bear much fruit and I'm motivated in a different sort of way, not because I'm trying to keep God's law and earn my way in, but I want to bear much fruit because I want people to see the cross for the glory that it is and the resurrection for the power that it is. Pat Avendroth's life is different than he used to be, not because he's trying harder and harder and harder. I don't want to say I'm not trying harder, but because the cross is powerful and the resurrection is powerful. Jesus Christ is great. Oh, back to John 15. God is glorified. How great is that? So I hope you're you're going to put, put pieces together and think about it in the right terms. Maybe here's a litmus. If you're getting glorified and honored because you're working so hard and you're so good, you don't have it figured out. <laughs> Go back to Romans 1, 2, and 3. And you have to figure, this power has to come from outside of me. It has to come from the cross. Indeed, the gospel is good. The gospel is very good. Let's move to the fourth, and it's like the other ones, so we can do it rather quickly. A fourth and final reason the gospel is good news to sinners is because it frees from sin and the law. It frees from sin and the law. Verse 5 and 6 is where we see this. Verse 5 is about your life before you're a Christian. And verse 6 is what happens as a result of union with Christ. And and by the way, I should point out, because I want to point it out all the time, and that is, he takes us back again to our lives before we're saved. You get the idea that God thinks this is a good idea. And so I think it's a good idea. And so pastorally, I'll encourage you to stop listening to people who tell you not to think or talk about sin. God thinks the exact opposite way. He wants you to keep going back to the fact that you are a sinner who deserves condemnation because then and only then will you continue to appreciate how great Christ's work is. And so don't be afraid of having your self-esteem spoiled by talking about what a sinner you are. You ought not have any self-esteem. And if you have any, I can guarantee you, you don't understand the gospel. You don't, from a spiritual vantage point. And so what is he going to do? Verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, that's a, a way of referencing our life before the gospel, before salvation, for while we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. You know? Who wants to claim that for their spiritual resume? But that is, there, there, there you go. I mean, knowingly or unknowingly, your life was about bearing fruit for death pretty hardcore and as surprising as it is it was surprising to me the first time I ever thought about this the law look there actually arouses these sinful passions the the, the law didn't tame down your sinfulness the law didn't curb your desire to do the wrong thing it actually brought it to a boiling point. It actually aggravated it. It actually aroused it is the word they, they, they put in here to get the idea. That's pretty intense. Now, lest we think God's law is bad for doing this, we're not there yet, but in this passage, at least two times, he tells us the law is good. In verse 12 is one of those passages. 
God's law is good. But there's something about God's good and holy and righteous law that causes people like you who are sinners and people like me to actually want to do the wrong thing. Isn't that weird? Isn't that perverse? I don't want to trivialize this in any way, shape, or form. But just think, we, we, we do find an appeal when we see a law. Something appealing about maybe breaking the law. And again, I know this trivializes it because we're talking about cosmic issues here, but, you know, sign that says, wet concrete, do not touch. Hmm. P-A-T-R-I-C-K-09, exclamation point. You know? Wet paint, do not touch. You know, it's just what we do. And I realize it's trivializing it, but there's something that we can relate to and we can understand. Who in their right mind would walk by a wall and go, if there weren't a big sign that says wet paint, do not touch? I mean, when is it, are you going to walk out and see concrete sidewalk and go, what if I could write my name in the sidewalk, you know? Are you an idiot? You know, you can't write your name in the sidewalk. But if it's fenced off, do not touch. Hmm. You know? It's just how we are. Well, in a bigger sense, God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who are you to tell me what to do? You know? And on and on it goes. And whether we can understand it fully or not through illustrations, it is what he says. Aroused by the law, these sinful passions are to bear fruit for death. It's a mess. Life is a mess. God gives us a good and holy law and it just makes it worse because we are so perverted. With that in mind, these great, great words in verse 6, I call these gospel words. But now! How good are those gospel words? But now! He's talking about but now having been united with Christ in His death and resurrection through faith. But now we have been released. Okay? Bondage to sin, bearing fruit for death. But now, having been released. Notice it's even not something you do. It's something that's done for you and to you. We have been released from the law. How? How could this happen? According to verse 1, well, it says in verse 6, having died to that by which we were bound. If I were a Baptist, I'd say, Amen! Yeah! This is fantastic! This is great! The stranglehold of the law is around my neck and I've been released. Did you see the contrast? Released. We were bound. And what's also very cool about this and important and significant is that you, if you've believed in Christ, have not been released unto nothing. It's not for nothing, to use a double negative to make the point, that you've been released. It's not that you've been released from the law through faith in Christ and His death and His burial and His resurrection and now you know what? You're free. Go in peace, serve the Lord, you know? As if to say, do nothing, do whatever you want to do. 
Because keep reading. In verse 6, so that, I love these purposes, so that we serve, this is not inactivity or passivity, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What a great contrast. We used to serve. Somehow, if I just do enough, I can maybe please God. And and it's all this external law-keeping, rule-keeping. But in fact, I'm not keeping the rules. and, And I'm trying. I'm serving all right. And I'm bearing fruit all right. Fruit unto death. And so are you. And then, radical transformation through faith in Christ and through the power of the cross, not through your power, through the power of the resurrection, not through your power. You serve now. But you serve in a totally different way. We still serve. There is still a master, make no mistake about it, but we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And I think what he's getting at is pretty simple. It used to be this external thing that we needed to do that was right to do, but we lacked power to do it. And so it's just condemnation, 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 bearing fruit unto death over and over again, Because of who we are, not because of God's bad law. It's God's good law. And then, through faith in Christ, united through His resurrection, you have power to bear fruit for God. Not only that you've been sealed with the Spirit, not only that you have the indwelling Spirit, and so now, from the inside out, you do the right things. You serve now out of gratitude, not payment. You serve now because you are a new creation in Christ. You serve now, again, because of the power of Christ's resurrection. It's an internal thing, not an external rule-keeping thing. I do want to serve. If you're a Christian, you should serve. If you're a Christian, you will bear fruit for God. But that's very, very different from you having rules and regulations and just trying harder, trying harder, trying harder and forgetting about the source of all the power to begin with. The second person of the Trinity working with the third person of the Trinity to glorify and honor the first person of the Trinity, if you will, who orchestrated all of this. Isn't this good? It just doesn't get any better than this from my perspective. Quite frankly, from God's perspective, or it wouldn't be in His Word. (laughs) There's freedom through Christ. The best way I could summarize all of this, death, the dead and alive with Christ for God. That's the Christian life. Dead and alive with Christ for God. There you go. That's what God has seen fit to do and He's done it. And we worship and praise Jesus Christ because of it. So pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this great time in Your Word. Thank You for the power of Christ in His death, in His resurrection. And through that, even sending Your Spirit to indwell us and to empower us to do the right thing. Lord, may we do the right thing. Not to somehow pay You, but because Christ has already made a sufficient payment on the cross as He propitiated Your wrath through His work. And that He victoriously rose again from the dead so that we might live different lives as well. How fantastic is the Gospel. How good is the Gospel. And we want to live to proclaim it. And we want to live to live it. To live it out and to bear fruit for you, for your glory, for your honor. May that be so. In Jesus' name, amen.